you know, just staying busy, right? Having like ideas percolate, having people to talk to about those ideas, being able to go out and shoot different things and create something. And then obviously having all the time to edit it, it's really helped my, my mental stability. Welcome to Appalachian Startup, stories of new ideas that eventually became thriving businesses in areas that most would consider a bad investment. I'm J.D. Belcher, and I started this podcast because I took the same path as a lot of these folks. I'm a former coal miner, and now I make films through my own production company called JJN Multimedia. I wanted to hear others speak of their journey to not only give new beginners hope, but to help me grow as a fellow entrepreneur. Curran Sheldon is a role model of mine. His filmmaking skills are never-ending, and I'm proud to say that he's one of the variables in my career that caused me to quit my day job. His experience during this pandemic has actually sparked a creative journey, along with Tija Bumgarner, in developing a short film series entitled Quarantine Life, which is actually currently being featured on Funny or Die's website. Amazing. We talk about his journey of creating Xeno Productions and all that it entails, as well as his experience as director of photography on the Academy-nominated, Emmy-winning documentary short film, Heroin. Enjoy. Xeno Productions was born out of actually another business, um, which was a travel documentary series, which was called Humanity. And it was co-founded with me and my buddy, um, Gaston Blanchet. And he's gone on to do, he's like a serial entrepreneur. He's gone on to do different things now. But um, we, we started a travel documentary series just because we wanted to sort of not have a day job in a lot of ways. Uh, we were both working in New York. We worked at the same travel startup. I, I actually went to school for writing. And so I was doing their content manager and he was doing business development there. Um, and I've always had this dream of, you know, either being a travel writer um, and that sort of morphed into, you know, how can I make a viable um, career with a sort of a life of adventure and sort of a never having the same day, you know, every day. Um, you know, I, I realized, and I worked in New York for about a year and a half, but I realized pretty quick, like as you go to a, a nine to five every day and as you, know, you do sort of the same routine, time just really starts clipping by. I've always sort of had the dream of, of you know, being a travel writer or, or kind of going out and living a life of adventure or whatever that means. Um, and I actually lived in China for a year right after college and that sort of really, really uh, sort of stuck that bug in me. Um, and so I've just always sort of trying to figure out a different way, like, okay, how can I have like a lifestyle rather than just, you know, a job? And I thought doing, you know, uh, some sort of travel video or travel photography would be a potentially like a way into that world. And I was working at a travel startup and one of my jobs was to find content for the site. So I was constantly messaging people for videos, photos, you know, different um, articles and things like that. And I just realized, and this is circa 2011, um, you know, there just wasn't a ton of great video content, especially travel video content. Um, and so I recruited my buddy who had never shot video before. I had really never shot video before. I'd just done, you know, some funny music videos with my brothers and sisters. Um, and, you know, we just started learning and we spent, we saved up as much money as we could in six months working in New York. I, I lived in a shoebox basically, uh, with two other roommates and, you know, we saved up enough money to buy plane tickets to India and we just traveled around the, the country or the world, I guess, where we went to 12 countries in about 10 months. Um, and our goal was to make a short documentary about a fascinating person every week. And so we would stay in, you know, $2 hostels. We'd find people as we went. We'd just meet people, you know, try to find inspirational people. And that was our documentary series, Humanity. We did, we did a version of that project for about three years. But out of that, um, we started getting commercial clients. And so we decided like, well, this is sort of two different things. One is our documentary travel series. And the other one is, you know, a commercial, a commercial business. So we sort of split them up into two. Humanity was the more artistic, um, you know, uh, documentary side. And then Xeno was our sort of commercial and branded side. Um, and I think just based on the type of work that we did do, Xeno started becoming very much around, you know, tourism and travel. And so we started working with a lot of brands uh, that are in that space. And initially, where did you learn the basics to start doing this? You know, you mentioned you didn't go to school for it. So how did, how did you learn? I mean, a lot of a lot of trial and error. I mean, it's always it was always really helpful to have a second person who is sort of at the exact same level I was and, and learning. Um, so I bought my first DSLR Canon 60D um, and I knew one, two other people who did video and actually one of them was Elaine, who was in, at a grad school in Boston. Elaine is now my wife, uh, for those who don't know. But um, so I started messaging her and just like, you know, hey, how do you 
you know, what's aperture, what's the shutter, shutter speed, you know, like how, does, how should I set this up? And so we met up a couple of times and just went over our different, you know, camera gear settings and she helped me uh, get started. Um, but other than that, it was just all online tutorials. I mean, my buddy and I would just sit around and Google things and really it was, it was just learning by doing. I mean, we shot two or three practice videos in New York uh, before we left. But even when we sort of started our actual projects, you know, we were still very, very new. Um, and but, you know, our goal was every time that we would go out and shoot something, we try something new or try to do something better. Right. We, we quickly realized like, oh, like hand holding a non stabilized lens, you know, and not having a tripod just kind of gives that weird jittery DSLR, you know, footage. And I was like, well, how do we fix that? And like, why is it doing that? Um, or like, why is everyone looking kind of, you know, stuttery? And we realized like we didn't have ND filters. So we were just cranking up our shutter speed because we wanted that cool shallow depth of field at F1.4 or whatever. Um, but we was just constantly just, you know, every time we'd, we would make a film, you know, we'd be like, oh, I wish I would have done that better. But how do I do that better? And so it was just a lot of Googling, a lot of tutorials, and a lot of trial and error. Right. Yeah. A couple of things that I, I did for a long time. I didn't know what white balance was for like a year and a half. And I would shoot in tungsten at all times. I don't even know why, but I was like, why does everything look pretty good inside? And then I go outside and everything's blue. Yeah. You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So it was uh, trial and error is it's is the fun part about it too because you start oh well you know and just one thing after another getting better and better yeah no um, that's true so the commercial clients how did they notice your work where was it at yeah the the first thing we did that sort of set us off on that path was for our documentary series we wanted to we were headed to Bangkok Thailand um, and we wanted to feature a chef we thought okay Thai food everyone loves Thai food so let's try to find a chef. Um, and so we contacted a hotel down there, uh, the JW Marriott in Bangkok and just asked if we could feature their chef. Um, and they're like, sure. I mean, they didn't no cost at them. Obviously we we're just doing it for, for our own thing. And so we made a three minute short film about the chef who cooks at the few different restaurants at, uh, the JW Marriott and they just loved it. Um, and so they brought us back to do a, a whole video for the hotel, which, you know, at the time we were staying in like four or $5 hostels, just sweating <laughs> every night, just <laughs> hot as junk. And so like, the, we were like, okay, we'll do a video for you. Uh, we charged them 500 bucks. Uh, the whole video took about nah, 10 days um, for two people. But we were like, but we get to stay at the JW Marriott for the whole time. <laughs> and right. we're like, yeah, sure, we have empty rooms. Um, and so we went to the you know, sort of this more high luxury hotel, which was, which was a good break after five or six months of staying in hostels. Um, but yeah, we did a hotel video for them and they really liked it. And then it started to start going around, you know, the different um, Marriott properties and people in, in uh, Asia. And so we started, we did like a food and beverage conference. We started doing a lot of stuff around food um, initially. Um, and so, you know, we, we kind of had to get jobs in just in order to, to uh, buy our plane tickets home. But, uh, and then it just kind of went from there. I mean, it just kind of kept on growing and growing. You know, then the corporate headquarters in Marriott saw our videos and hired us to do a few others. Um, and I, I would often do like when I wanted to get a new client or a new job, and I still do this, is, um, you know, I'll do something for a potential big client at a very low cost. And a lot of people say you shouldn't do that because then they think they'll last the cost. And, but it's more the way I approach it is like, I want to do something um, more artistic. I want to push myself. This is sort of like a growing opportunity for me. So you get let me do whatever I want and I will you know, make you a video at cost basically. So whatever the cost of it is, to if I need to rent extra gear or whatever it might be. And I've done that a couple times that has always resulted in a lot more work um, at good budgets. And I used to do that for different hotels because a lot of hotel videos I think are very stale and kind of boring. And so I want to do something weird and new and creative um, and just play with new gear that I may have just gotten, haven't had a chance to use yet on a, on a paid commercial gig. And that's always sort of resulted in you know doing some, some higher paid stuff. So. Um, doing that kind of stuff, yeah, is sort of how, how we grew Zeno. Coming into the business aspect of it, how did you start to build models on knowing how what the cost is, uh, you know, uh, how much it costs to make one of these videos? I still, honestly, I still am never quite sure because there are some things where I'm like, okay, I'm at this point now where I can charge this budget. And then you put that out there and people are like, oh, whoa, this is way more expensive than we thought it would be. But at the same time, I've had that exact same experience where like, oh, great. Yeah, for sure. Let's do it. Like, I'm like, ah, I should have asked for more. <laughs> um, 
And it's, it's constantly like that, especially when we started. I mean, we did, you know, that $500 hotel video that I'm not sure how many man hours we put into it, but we couldn't have been making, you know, much higher than minimum wage um, between the two of us. And so you think of things like that, it's, it's, uh, it's really tough to know what to charge, but we just kind of kept helping it. Every time a new person asked who wasn't a repeat client, we would just try to like, you know, up it a little bit, whether it was 50% more or double it. Um, and then finally, when we got to what we thought were, you know, bigger clients like the uh, Marriott headquarters, the Marriott International, you know, we just put out some some bigger numbers um, and they just they went for it. So we just kind of just kept raising our levels as we could. Now it's, you know, now that I do more for higher work, such as, you know, being a DP or an editor or a director, you know, there's, there's sort of set rates in, in different industries, depending on what that is. Um, and so you can kind of use those numbers to gauge, uh, you know, what, what you charge. But it's, it's still to this day, it's hard. I think a lot of people, I mean, again, like right now, I'm being a little coy about it too, because no one really wants to talk exactly about like the hard numbers, right? Um, and so it's mm -hmm. it's always difficult to find that information of like how much should you charge for something that you know people have very different perceived values of of you know the product itself. Right, makes total sense. So you know transitioning into you know paid work as far as editing and DPing and in the in the documentary world, how did that occur? Was it kind of you and Elaine you know learning together and growing? that aspect of it or just diving in on passion projects and seeing what happens or I've been doing humanity and Xeno for a couple of years when Elaine and I got married and then we sort of did our own separate thing for a while. She had just finished um, her project hollow and that was launched and you know, she was doing work for um, like the New York times and, and um, field of vision. So doing more sort of journalistic documentary work and I was doing more sort of commercial and travel work. Um, and we started working together on a few small things. You know, I, I'm, you know, very sort of technically minded. I like to make things pretty. I want things to look nice. Um, I want to try new gear. I want to try new stuff. And, you know, she's, while a very, very good shooter, is very focused on, you know, story and relationships and, um, you know, more of a journalistic mindset. And so we just sort of started melding those two together. Um, and I, th I think the result really worked out. But it was just sort of at one point where, you know, Zena was doing fine. You know, I was having a, a fine career, but it, you know, this, like any sort of commercial work, while it's enjoyable, it's, there's something that, you know, you want something that has more of a uh, stronger purpose in the world, you know, it fulfills you more. And so we are just always talking about, you know, trying to do, um, you know, more impactful work. And we were just sort of around that time in our careers, we were both sort of, you know, doing well and, you know, for a couple of years, but we wanted to sort of, we always talked about like, okay, we need to like level up, you know, and, and if we're going to sort of level up, what does that look like? And how do we do it in a way that's, um, you know, the greatest amount of good, if you will. And so, you know, we had done a bunch of short documentaries, you know, I did dozens of them for humanity, dozens of them in branded content. She did tons of them for hollow. And so we just wanted to try to tackle something longer. Um, and so we started thinking about different, you know, feature films that we could do and different topics. And we went through sort of a different, a bunch of different ones. At the time we had been sort of moving around a lot. And it was right when the opioid crisis had, had really struck West Virginia. And, um, I'm from West Virginia. I grew, I moved here when I was five. So it's mostly, you know, what I knew growing up, but Elaine, um, you know, her, she's got generations and generations of family here. Um, so we always were sort of pulled back to, to West Virginia in a lot of ways. And so when there's tons of people coming in and telling the story of the opioid crisis in West Virginia um, and doing it in a very sort of parachute way, um, you know, we thought there, there is a, a way to make a deeper, more impactful film. Um, and we both were sort of in that headspace that we wanted to do something bigger, um, both for our careers, but also just because it was needed. And so we just decided yeah, to move back and, and start making a feature documentary about, about that. We weren't exactly sure what it was going to be. It turned out to be two films, uh, Recovery Boys and Heroin. Um, but it was really just sort of a concerted decision. Like, no, we're going to focus on, you know, however long it takes going to make sort of bigger projects. And that might, you know, initially we were like, okay, we can shoot for six months and edit for six months. It'll be a year project. Um, both those films ended up taking, you know, three years as all documentaries do now that like, when you're really going for a feature documentary, you know, any, it's hard to do anything shorter than a couple of years. Um, and it's just so, so those sort of things take a lot of time. So it was, yeah, I was really just sort of making that decision of, you know, we're going to do this and, and let's go back and, and focus on a subject that could potentially help a lot of people and shed some light on, on, on an issue. So the initial subject was you just, did you know you just wanted to do something on the opioid crisis or did you know about a certain subject and then things branch off from there? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, we, 
sort of thinking about the opioid crisis, especially in Appalachia and specifically West Virginia for for quite a while. And we just really couldn't think of like, okay, what's the entry into this story? You know, we just want to just go back and, you know, point our cameras at, you know, the crisis, if you will. You know, plenty of people are doing that. And so actually it was Elaine's uh, professor at West Virginia University where she she went to college who um, had met Kevin Blankenship, who was starting the uh, farming based rehab in Aurora, West Virginia. And so that was sort of our entry point. It was like, wow, this is a really cool story of, you know, here's this person um, who you know was one of the founders of MedExpress, had retired, and you know his own son was um, grabbed by addiction, and he just couldn't find any any rehabs in in West Virginia or even you know in a pretty large area. And so you know he had the means and the money to send his to send his kid to you know a great outdoor rehab. Uh, I think it was in either Arizona or New Mexico. Um, and be- through that experience, he's like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I will be the person that will help people here and I will create a, a farming based rehab here so that people from Appalachia, West Virginia or really anywhere can kind of come and, and get help here. And we just thought that story was was awesome. You know, someone really trying to help um, and just his whole story as well. But also the, um, uh, you know, just the aspect that it wasn't even open yet. You know, we were we were filming when they were painting the walls on the you know, on the Aurora project where they leased the buildings. And so we were there when the first person arrived. And so just being able to have access to that story, we thought, okay, well, here's, here's our entry point into, you know, into this crisis. And hopefully from a, a vantage, uh, vantage point of, you know, hope and people trying to help. Um, and then we went to Huntington just because it was, you know, as they said, the epicenter of the crisis, the highest overdose rate. Um, and that's where we met Jan Rader and Nisha and, and Judge Keller. And, um, you know, all the things they were doing down in Huntington. And we thought we were going to put two films together. One would be sort of the crisis side in Huntington. One would be the, you know, recovery side at this farming based rehab. And then we, we quickly learned that it was actually two separate films um, just because they were, they were so different, but there's also just so much substance in both of them. Um, and so that's, that's why I split them up and made them one a 39 minute short and the other one a 90 minute feature. Oscar nominated short. You got him. It's Emmy winning short. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you decided to do that, did you just cut off all commercial projects and just dive in on this one thing? It or? was. It was definitely less. Um, I still did quite a bit of commercial work, and I was in a, at a point um, in those couple years where it actually worked out pretty well because I was I was sort of got hooked into the Florida hotel business, which was a little strange. I went down there and did a couple of videos. Well, we actually did live in Miami for a little bit, so I did a couple of videos um, when I lived there. And so it actually worked out like I would have maybe a commercial shoot every you know month or two for a different hotel or for like the Florida Conference Center in, in for Marriott. Um, and so the shoot would be you know maybe seven or eight days. So I would go down there for seven or eight days, and I would edit for three or four weeks. But you know it was, it was easy to sort of come back and forth and do you know a commercial shoot for a week, and then come back and sort of edit while we go out and still shoot the um, the documentaries. And so at that point, you know we were still you know, doing different things, um, to supplement, you know, our creative work. Um, you know, we did recovery boys and heroin for, I think 12 to 14 months without any funding. So it was just us showing up sort of day after day, um, and filming, we'd go one or one or two times a week, um, to the rehab to film as the guys were sort of progressing through the program. And then, um, and then we got a grant from the Center for Investigative Reporting um, for to finish heroin. We had filmed maybe ten or twelve days, and that was nice because then we could just you know schedule basically one fifteen day shoot where we went down and, and shot a bunch um, of stuff in in a row, which was nice. Um, but it had already been like a year since we filmed the first stuff, so it was nice to show see like the progress of you know the characters, and then just a few different pickup shots. So it was, it was at that time and still to this day, you know, I do a lot of my own personal work. I do documentary work. I get hired to DP, but I also do commercial work as well. Um, and so it's nice to be able to sort of structure, structure the, um, you know, your work in a way that they don't impede on each other, really. Um, if you if you set it up right, which I'm not the best organizer in the world, but that's easy enough. Do you turn jobs down or, or do you have a certain number of jobs that you'll take to not burn yourself out? You know, like uh, for me, I try to, uh, you know, two decent sized commercial projects a month is what I try to stick around. Um, uh, You know, how do you approach that? I think it just kind of depends. I mean, it's very it's a very hot and cold business, especially sort of being, you know, hired as as crew, which I don't do a lot of. I, I prefer to sort of either do my own projects or do more commercial work. Um 
you know, DPing and being on other people's projects is, um, it's, it's tough actually. It's kind of strange, especially, I mean, because I've always worked with Elaine or, you know, have done my own thing is there's very much a sort of sense of control that you lose when you're just, you know, shooting someone else's thing. And it's always never really that clear of like the way you do things is how they want things done. Um, especially as, as the shooter, um, but I mean, it's it's really kind of depends on on month to month, sort of how how busy I am. But I do turn things down. I turn things down mostly out of based on you know, is this something that I I really want to do? And I and at this point, you know, I'm I'm sort of uh, privileged to be able to have that choice rather than you know, okay, do I need money? And that's always been sort of something I've gone back through my head is I guess I would consider myself a freelancer. And so far as you know, I'm, I'm not hiring people. If I hire people, it's always contractors for a single job. I you know work from home and so the the overhead is is very 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 small um for for my company and just sort of my lifestyle and so you know I have for sort of that that flexibility and luxury which I'm not exactly sure is you know a flexibility or luxury that I actually prefer um I'm sort of actually thinking about that right now you know but I have that flexibility to turn things down or to do projects that I would like to do or do my own projects and try to sell those um rather than you know being hired on as crew but but luckily for me, I'm, you know, I've had a pretty good sort of four or five jobs that pop up every year in my commercial worlds that sort of sustain kind of what, what I personally need, um, you know, from a from a monetary standpoint. And then that frees me up to do more creative work or, you know, to work on Elaine's projects or to work on my own projects. Um, so, yeah, it just kind of depends on kind of how busy I am at that moment. Got it. And I'm hopping around a little bit, but, you know, obviously we could talk about gear for two hours, but if someone out there that, you know, they think they have a good idea and they're not really sure that they have the equipment, um, you know, what would you say to somebody wanting to make a documentary but thinks that it takes tens of thousands of dollars to do so? Yeah. No, I mean... I think the way I learned how to do this and sort of how my career has progressed has sort of shown that it really, really doesn't take that much anymore um, to make a film or to make a documentary. It's really about time. It's really about showing up. It's really about relationships. You know, there's a lot of very, very pretty and technically amazing documentaries on Netflix now or doc series. But you realize that, you know, maybe this story isn't as uh engaging right it's like there's there's plenty of people on the internet and there's plenty of people around the world who can make something look really 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 nice um and i think the one thing that we really learned with with hair and recovery boys was you know it's it's the showing up time after time it's building relationships it's following the story it's showing change over the course of you know a film that is the most compelling um and you know there's some of the best documentaries i've seen the last 10 years are not necessarily nicely shot documentaries or beautiful documentaries right or or even beautiful films it's really about sort of you know how they were presented in in the story that you're you're um that you're watching and the story that the the filmmaker is trying to tell and now i mean you know I, I look back some of my stuff that i shot for humanity and again it could be the location i was in and the lighting at the time but i can see stuff on what is now I don't know, $100 camera, I think you probably buy it used that I was shooting those on. Um, and some of the shots still look beautiful. You know, it's just because it's not 4K and it's, you know, not 10-bit and all this, you know, this jargon that people, you know, always look for in cameras. Um, some of that stuff still looks really great. And, you know, it's really about probably because I was in a beautiful location with a really interesting person who was, you know, saying something inspiring. Um, and that is way more important than sort of, you know, you know buying a $10,000 camera, or, you know, having a huge crew. Um and especially with documentaries, I think having, you know, Lane and I have always said that, you know, two people, maybe three, it depends on the what type of job it is, but two people are sort of our favorite crew size for a documentary. Um, you know, mm. we've been on some crews that are, you know, nine, 10 people and you just, you feel sort of the, the, the world of the subject and the world that you're filming just sort of close down, right? It just becomes almost claustrophobic in terms of there's so many people watching this person perform, right? Rather than just live. Um, right. And you know, you never want to outnumber the subjects, in my opinion. Um, obviously, you're just filming one person. Having a camera and a sound person is great. But, you know, in Recovery Boys, a lot of them said, you guys just basically came like lamps in the corner. Um, you know, we forgot you were there, you know, you're, but you just were being, became part of the rehab. And I think in documentary, that's more important than, you know, having, you know, a big crew and lights and, you know, trying to make everything just the way you want it. Um, and that might mean it's not as, you know, as pretty and as gorgeous as, as you would like. But, I've always really liked the challenge of trying to make verite footage or observational footage, um, you know, as pretty as, 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 you know, like a narrative film. That's always been sort of a, a goal of mine. 
um, which is not easy to do because you have no idea what's going to happen. You have no idea where people are going. You don't know what the lighting is going to be. And so trying to figure out the different techniques and, and gear that, you know, help you get the, the look you want. For someone on a limited budget, if you were to say, okay, take the majority of it and drop it on video or audio, which is more important? Well, I think, I mean, in, in general, audio is more important. Um, I went and spoke at a class at Marshall once and I said, you know, people will forgive. And this is not a quote I made up. I don't know who said it, but people will always forgive, you know, a, a bad shot. All right. They'll record shaky or they'll they'll forgive shaky footage, but they will not forgive bad audio. Because if you have bad audio and you can't hear what's happening, you don't understand the story, then you check out pretty quick. You know, think of any any video you've watched where, you know, either the mic is scratchy or, you know, it's really far away. So you can't really hear what they're saying or whatever, you know, whatever that might be. And you quickly tune out. It doesn't matter how pretty the shot is. Right. If you can't understand what's happening, then you you won't enjoy the, the story. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say either like dumping money in either one, because even audio. Right. You can spend 100, 200 bucks and you can get a pretty darn good setup. Um, maybe maybe a little more than that. So. I would say definitely focus on audio more um, if you're trying to do something like a short documentary or tele documentary. Um, but I also, you know, if I personally enjoy shooting, I enjoy the image, the imagery more. Um, so that's always something that I've I've really focused on. But you just need to make sure you're good enough at audio so that you're you can hear people clearly and you can understand the story. Because once you can't, you know, once you're frustrated watching something because you're not quite hearing or understanding what's going on, you check out pretty quick. Definitely. And, you know, in these current times, there's so much stuff I want to pick your brain about, about, you know, how you set up your your structure for doing a documentary. But more importantly, now, you know, in the current time with the coronavirus, how are you and Elaine dealing with, you know, the isolation kind of I know like work wise and for me too it hasn't really changed a lot but it it has a it has changed socially and it's really affected me mentally I can obviously tell um uh, how have you all been dealing with this yeah I mean it's it is tough I mean we definitely both are impacted by it things are maybe tenser than than usual um and I think you know in general, I'm trying to stay busy. You know, the first three or four weeks that we were quarantined, I was actually on a, a really job that I get every year that I really like that's, you know, three or four weeks long every March and early April. Um, and I was just starting. I was on day two, I think, and it got canceled. So had to come home um, and then had another job in April that I was really looking forward to. That was going to be sort of one of my, my bigger jobs I've ever had. And I was very excited about that. That got canceled. And so suddenly, um, you know, I had six weeks of work in the next nine weeks completely canceled um and as of now you know no no return in in sight so the first you know three or four weeks it was just a lot of um you know first it's kind of like oh this is nice it's like a break right i'm gonna get up i'm gonna drink coffee i'm gonna read and then you know just sort of slowly sets in this sort of like feeling of malaise and and not even boredom but just sort of this this need to do something um and you know Ever since then, I started a, a comedic web series um, with some friends and and that has really helped because, you know, just staying busy, right? Having like ideas percolate, having people to talk to about those ideas, being able to go out and shoot different uh, different things and create something um, and then obviously having all the time to edit it. It's really helped my my mental stability is just to have a project, have a goal and try to do a little bit of that every day and, you know, have days that you dedicate specifically for that. Um, and I do have some other work, but that has sort of been the bulk of my time in the last five or six weeks is sort of focusing on this own personal projects that, you know, eight weeks ago didn't exist. Um, and that's always been sort of like I've always sort of had that, I, you know, I, I can chill out pretty easily for like a week or two. But then, um, you know, not even sure self-loathing is the right word, but this idea of just like, wow, you really need to be doing something. Um, and so I've always sort of had that in me. Luckily, to when I get to that point of anxiety is like, OK, I'll just need I just need to act. Um, I just need to do something. And so that's that's really helped a lot. Um, Elaine luckily had a job that was in post-production um, that is wrapping up soon. But she's been able to she's working with an editor in Chicago, actually. Um, and so, you know, she's been able to sort of have that as it's a project that she's working on to sort of keep her busy and, and a few other projects that she's you know hoping to get out in the world. 
Um, but in general, I mean, it's, it's tough, you know, it's, it's tough kind of always being in, in home. It's tough not to go out into the world and, and film and see people. Um, you know, we, we had projects that we were, we were doing and now can't do anymore. Um, and so it's really just trying to think of what are the different ways besides, you know, what I was doing before quarantine and before COVID-19, um, you know, what are the new things I can do? Obviously the old ways are, you know, we can't do them. So let's think of something new that we can do, um, to sort of keep us mentally intact. Um, and so having, having sort of a creative project to, to pour your energy into has helped a lot. So, uh, with the series, how did that, you know, did you just have a thought and did you, you know, did you reach out to Tija or, you know, who, how did that grow from that thought to reality? Yeah. So, and um, hot contents is the, yeah, yeah. the paint. Yeah. So, yeah, we just, that was some random name we came up with. It's actually my buddy Brady. We were uh, driving around and he was just drinking coffee. And he and I have talked about, you know, working together and we've worked together on projects as just contractors and freelancers. But he was drinking coffee and he saw on the top of the lid, it said hot contents. <laughs> and he's like, oh man, that's a great name for a production company. And I was like, yeah, but it'd have to be funny. And we don't really do funny things. Um, so anyway, but uh, yeah, so Tisha and I, we, we uh, were doing like a script club. So she teaches at Marshall. She's made a, a narrative feature and she, she lived in L.A. for a little bit and did some acting. Um, but, you know, we're both very interested in doing narrative work. And so um, I've, I've in the last couple of years, uh, I've been writing different scripts. So narrative films, series, things like that. Um, and she has done the same. And so we just started a script club where we meet every couple of weeks or so and just read each other's scripts and give notes and, and sort of give feedback. And we'd only done that maybe three or four times when COVID-19 hit. Um, and so we were just having one of those script clubs over over uh, Zoom or FaceTime or something. And it just sort of got like that feeling. It was like in the first couple of weeks, we're just like, you know what? The, we can talk about these scripts and, you know, you know, fix them all we want. But like, it kind of feels like they'll never happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like, when will you ever be able to hire a crew of, you know, 30 people and hire actors and have them all, you know, stay together and, you know, a hotel or whatever uh, for three weeks straight to shoot a film and be, you know, within this close and this proximity of people. And so mm, that right. just sort of like it became discouraging to some degree. Um, and then, you know, we just had some funny experiences that, that became part of the series where like and we just started, started talking about that, you know, instead of like, oh, we should just write a short script about at the time, it was just the episode one, like at the social distance hangout, because we had just tried mm -hmm. to like hang out in our yard with some friends. and It was a really windy day. And, you know, if you turn to talk to this person, the person behind you couldn't hear you because they were, you know, <laughs> you know, 15, 20 feet back. Um, and so it was so windy. And so it was just like, hey, it'd be kind of funny if it was just like a person trying to have a conversation. And then you zoomed out and realized that like, oh, no one can hear each other because we're all socially distancing hangout. Um, and, you know, from that, you know, we just started talking about different ideas. You know, I, I literally the episode two of the series was working from home where, you know, I try to motivate myself to really get to work and then open my calendar and realize there's there's nothing on it for, you know, five, five months, which is true. All, ba all based on very true stories. Right. Um, yeah. So then, yeah, once we sort of had those first two ideas and I shot episode two, uh, Elaine helped me out, helped me do that um, and had that one finished. We're like, oh, this is actually kind of funny. Like, let's go and do the other ideas we had. And then, then it just became a process of, you know, sitting down, talking through all the different ideas. Obviously, a lot of them are based on reality and, and things that other people have experienced or we have experienced. Um, and now we sort of just, you know, get on a call once a week, talk through our, the few different ideas that we want to do for that week. Um, and then, you know, I'll write a script and send it to her or she'll write a script and send it to me. And we'll just sort of workshop that. Um, and then we, you know, ask our friends and implore our friends to please help us uh, when needed. So, right. uh, yeah. So you didn't write all the scripts at once. You These just come up one at a time and, and you, you know, I'm imagining when you write it, you think of how can I shoot this by myself if I have yeah. to? You no, know? right, exactly. No, it is. And it, it helps. I mean, obviously it helps a lot to have um, Elaine as, as my wife so that she's, you know, can, can help me shoot. Um, so that, that helps a lot. So I was like, I always know, okay, I might have Elaine for a couple hours to help me do this. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is like, okay, what can we do, you know, you know, either in one of our yards or in our neighborhood, um, you know, what friends will want to help out and what, you know, what roles can they play? Um, and now how can we do it sort of all at a, at a socially distanced and safe and safe uh, distance? So, yeah, a lot of them are based on that. And luckily, like a lot of the experiences that we're all sort of collectively ha having is, you know, they require you to sort of be far away or distanced. Um, and so it's, it's not too difficult to think of sort of those different ideas. 
But yeah, I think we had initially, you know, we wrote down a bunch of ideas and sort of one big brainstorming session. And then we just sort of refine them or twist them um, to see sort of what works because some just, you know, either just aren't funny or, or just don't quite work out the way you think they're going to. Um, and so like, okay, well that, you know, this Zoom bomber skit didn't quite work. You know, is there a different one we can do that's, that's sort of funnier? Um, and that's when we're still sort of working on like, how do we make this funny without it just being boring on Zoom? But all right. Uh, yeah, yeah. But we'll see. Uh, yeah. I mean, so it's really just a process of, uh, yeah, thinking of thinking of different ideas and, and hammering them out and just sort of like how much production it'll it'll take. You know, some, you know, some took an hour to shoot, an hour to edit, and some took, you know, 10 hours to shoot and a whole day to edit or more. And so it's just trying to figure out, like, what do we have time for? And, you know, there's a couple of ideas I really, really like. But I'm just like, ooh, like the production of this would be <laughs> take so much time that I have to like, you know, you got to build up to that and, you know, gather some forces to help you out. People can watch It's Quarantine Life. How do they find the episodes? Yeah. So um, we are on YouTube and Facebook and I actually started doing a Vimeo channel as well. But um, the production company, which we just sort of came up with uh, right before we started putting the episodes up, it's called Hot Contents. Um, and that's on Facebook and on YouTube. So if you just search for hot contents, um, you'll find it. Who all has been working, what all collaborators have been working on it with you? Yeah. So, um, principal team is Tija and I, uh, we sort of work on or do something in almost every episode. Um, obviously Elaine helps out a lot, but then, uh, Kinship Goods. So Dan Davis from Kinship, he designed our logo. He does all the the title cards. So he did the quarantine life and the different episode thumbnails and things like that. So he's been a big help and, and he's also starred in a couple, a couple shorts as well. Um, and he's actually in one that comes out Monday that I'm very excited about. Uh, he and Teaser have a, both have big roles. Um, but he's, yeah, he's helped out a ton and obviously it's, it's always that little thing, especially in like film and production and, you know, uh, you obviously know doing different podcasts and stuff. It's like, you could have a great product, but if it's not packaged, you know, in a nice way, you know, it's people don't t- tend to like either click on it or so his, his input and his, his design has really sort of just elevated, um, sort of the professionalism of, of the series, which has been really, really nice. Um, and then the rest is just sort of a, a collection of friends, um, Jen and Carlene from 84 agency, who's a marketing agency here in Charleston. They've, um, they've joined in on a couple videos. Um, and then Tisha's partner, Dan, who works at Taylor books. So it's just sort of like a, a fun group of Charleston, uh, the who's who of Charleston sort of in these videos. <laughs> right. That's awesome. And you was talking about, you know, you needing to setting some goals. How important is that, you know, for someone who's sitting at the house and hasn't lived a normal life by any means the past couple months how important is it to come up with something to be excited about uh for for me personally i think it's really important i guess i mean i think for most people it's probably really important um i think just as human beings we need something to either look forward to or put our energy towards right um you know obviously it's it's when you're just busying yourself and you're creating things and you're completing tasks you know you sort of have that level of fulfillment um, you know, sort of kind of sitting around and hanging out and being lazy is, is I think for anyone fun for a few days, right. Or maybe a couple of weeks if you're on vacation, but most people are like kind of ready to get back to like, you know, doing something and creating something, um, pretty quickly. And I think if you don't have, um, you know, if you don't have that action, um, and you're just sort of idle, then I think it, I think it gets mentally gets very, very difficult, especially, especially when you can't go out and do a lot of things, um, and so, yeah, I think it's it's super important to sort of have something. And if, if I don't, I you know, I just kind of go a little a little crazy for sure. Um, so to have to have something is oof, very important. What is the strategy as we slowly start to go back? Uh, you know, I'm not going to say normal because it won't be normal. But what is your strategy on how to build back up or how to dive back in on doing what you love? I, it's it's gonna be really tough because like obviously no one knows kind of what is going to happen right so you know there's a documentary that's been shooting in West Virginia that I've shot for a couple times and they're sort of you know want to sort of go out and shoot again and I'm just like I don't know if it's like you know even if I wear a mask and stay a certain distance you know you, when you're making a film especially either by yourself or without a sound person it's like you need to get close to people you need to clip microphones onto them 
Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't really know when sort of that going back to normal will will happen. Um, so I'm trying to think of what you know. What are the things that I can do? You know, what are the different things that I can do in, in my work and in my in my job that you know you could do in sort of that weird sort of gray area, right? You're not quarantined anymore, but you should be careful and probably shouldn't get that close to people or you know stay inside for a, a prolonged period of time, um, you know, with with people. So it's I'm still actually trying to figure that out. You know, it's like what what does that look like? Um, as of now, you know, I'm sort of just enjoying what, I, what I'm doing with, with quarantine life um, and just going to kind of keep filming that uh, until until this is all over. But, you know, sort of figuring out what it looks like when you go back to normal is, is tough. It's definitely very tough. Do you have a formula for how you approach edits? Like, you know, you get a call for a video that you've done, you know, 20 times for somewhere, somewhere you know, maybe the brand's different, but they do the same service. And you're kind of like, well, I know I'll slot out this, this, and this on the edit, and then I'll fill it in with, you know, a little B-roll and do these kind of transitions. Or do you approach each with a completely different mentality? I would say, I mean, yeah, there's definitely, I think it's more of not so much a formula or like, I'm going to do this, this, and this, but just like when you when so when you get to a point where you have a lot of experience, you've done a lot of you know different films and different short films. You just start knowing like what you'll need in the edit, which is another reason why like if you're getting started out in film, you should definitely shoot and edit. Um, because I always have a hard time not shooting anything that I'm working on. Because if I'm going to edit it, then I know what I'll need. Um, and so for me, it's really you know there are some things that I'll script out and storyboard and you know. 99 times out of 100 I will do something that's different than the storyboard so I don't I don't really focus on it that much anyway like if the client wants it and like okay this is generally how it will flow I'll be happy to give it Um, but I'm usually making those decisions on the spot like on the shoot is you know what we planned for this but this will look better like and and you just start getting that mentality or you get that experience of you'll know it'll look better Um, Mm -hmm. and that's really helped me out in the fact that you know, while I'm shooting and, but if I'm also directing, um, then it becomes a little more difficult because you start being the person who kind of has to do everything. Right. And then because I'm shooting it this specific way, then I have to edit it because, you know, I didn't shoot the storyboard. I shot the way I wanted to shoot it now. So now I have to edit it. And so you, you sort of pigeonhole yourself a little bit in terms of, Oh, now I have to do all the work. Um, Right. right. And you know, that's not a great way to grow a company or it's great for individual projects. Um, but it's it's really sort of a you know decision on the spot of kind of what I want to film and how I want to film it. Um, and but knowing in the back of my mind how I'm going to put it together, um, which is, you know, like quarantine life. I'll just sometimes shoot just sort of, sort of random things because like, oh, I, now I know I'll put this over that um, or do this cutaway or whatever it is. And so it's just something you sort of learn and, and figure out. Totally understand. And that we can kind of break that down for someone who may not edit, but like say you're shooting a scene for a documentary, how important is it to get a diverse range of shots for the edit instead of just that one focal length standing one place? You know, how, how do you put yourself in the mentality now of like, okay, well, I know I need this close up. I know I need a couple of, you know, B-roll of this item that's laying on the table or whatever. How important is that? Oh, it's, it's very important. It's actually something, you know, when you do only short things like, you know, three or four minutes, a lot of it's probably going to be B-roll, right? Just basically footage that, you know, people aren't talking on that you can just sort of lay over sort of beauty shots. But when you start doing real, you know, sort of longer stuff, feature lengths or even just scene based things, right? So, you know, Heroin Recovery Boys is very scene based. There's no on-screen interviews. And so everything, almost, almost everything happens on screen, um, sort of in a live, live environment. And, you know, since we hadn't really shot a lot of that kind of stuff before, we learned pretty quick. And luckily, we kind of went back and started editing stuff, you know, pretty early on. We learned pretty quick that, oh, we're not getting the coverage that we need Um, in terms of, you know, you're shooting a one hour meeting of people talking. And if you're just focused always on the person who's speaking, you realize that if you need to edit, edit that, you know, them talking for five minutes down to 30 seconds, you know, to the 30 seconds that, you know, is either most impactful or is the part of the story that you need that there might be cuts in there and you need to cover that up with something, right? You need to put another shot over it so that people can't see the cut. Um, 
instead of just a random landscape. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. Right. You yeah. can't just put in a random landscape and, um, you know, some people will shoot like hands and pens, but you know, I've, we've always really liked to show faces and make sure that we're always getting as much face, you know, face time as possible. Um, and so you're constantly always, you know, another sort of reason to always sort of be thinking about audio and thinking about editing as a shooter is you constantly always need to be listening and sort of building the story in your mind as it's happening. Um, and so you want to be on the person saying something when they're saying something really important right? Something like, Oh, we're going to use this, but you know, you also need to get shots of other people nodding and talking and responding and replying. And so you're constantly always sort of on a swivel. You're constantly like, I might be filming you right now, but being looking over here at someone else and see like, what's their reaction? Like, who's going to talk next? Like who's going to respond? Um, and sort of anticipating kind of what's going to happen next. Um, and so if you don't have that stuff, then yeah, it's either just a very jumpy edit where you're just cutting people talking kind of like they do on YouTube vlogs, just <laughs> like, hey guys, I'm going to talk. Uh, <laughs> but, or, or yeah, you're showing just random shots that have nothing to do with the scene that you're, sh- you're showing. Um, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely something that's, that we learned sort of the hard way and luckily learned early enough on um, that not too much of the film was really hard for an editor to, to put together. <laughs> Has there ever been a moment while you're filming where you feel it like this moment's going in the final cut? I 100% know it. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think and it's kind of it's kind of crazy because, you know, when you watch a, you know, a feature length documentary, especially especially ones that have a lot of observational verite stuff in it, you know, you only need or even a narrative film, really. Right. All of them build to like three or four great scenes. Right. Like there's always sort of the there's the exposition, there's, you know, sort of the quieter moments. And but a lot of them always build to just like three or four great, great, great scenes. And everything else is just sort of, you know, moving the story along to get to those scenes. Um, And so even documentaries, especially that's that's very true is like, you know, there are there's these great scenes and we need to build the story to that. And when you're filming it, sometimes you have the oftentimes you have that realization like, oh, this is one of those scenes. Um, and, and, you know, you know, you want to make sure to get it in there and, and try to figure out like how to, how to build up to that. So yeah, I've had both recovery boys and heroin and the, I've been working on a boxing, uh, potentially series, potentially film for about three years, which looks amazing. Well, thank you. And um, thank you for your inspiration to make my boxing. Yeah, 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 no worries. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and so that's, I mean, that film especially has like six scenes that I just love and it like show like all the all the characters sort of in their element doing kind of exactly what they're going to do and has conflict and has tension and has resolution. And so every time I think about editing it, it's always sort of like, okay, how do we build up to these scenes? Like how do we get, you know, Corky to that scene? How do we get Melvin to that scene? Um, and, and when you capture something like that as it's happening, you know, for like an hour, it's like one of the more nerve wracking and anxiety inducing, but also exciting things you can do sort of as a documentary film. Cause you're just constantly checking like, okay, is, am I recording? Am I recording? Am I recording? <laughs> am I recording? Right. Yeah. Uh, is it in focus? Is it in focus? Like who's, and so like there are parts of, of documentary films that are just like, oof, like just like six hours of just listening to people talk. <laughs> right. And then there's some of those moments where you're just like, Oh, you just perk up and like, oh, okay, here, like this is, yeah, you this just is. bounce around. That's why you keep doing it is to get those moments. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's going to happen. And, and you know when it's happening because like I can feel it in my spine. Like I just feel like, man, I'm so, I'm so lucky to be here witnessing this and to be able to portray this story. But at the same time, there's things that happen that with me anyway, I've been conflicted and I've left things out because of that. Do you ever have that moment of like, well, maybe I should hit the red button and like put the camera down? Oh, yeah. Or... No, yeah. for sure. I mean, there's there's an aspect and it just all depends on sort of the subject, right? Like in the boxing film, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're filming that may be difficult or hard, you know, are expected, right? Like, oh, you just got your ass beat. Like, like sorry, it sucks. You're bleeding. I'm going to keep filming it and you lost and you're upset. But like, we all knew this was an, a, poss- a possibility, right? Um, because this is a brutal sport and you know I'm here filming it. But in, in some things where it's the aspect of like a people's you know, really like deep down the person's life, you know, like there's a lot of moments in heroin recovery boys where people just go through really difficult, either internal struggles or, you know, especially when dealing with addiction that filming it, you just kind of feel, I mean, you feel awful. I mean, honestly, it's sort of this, this weight, um, as if you're doing something almost wrong, right? Like you're a voyeur that you shouldn't be there. And at those times you just kind of like, I just don't want to film this. 
And at the same time, like, you know, you have to, right? Like everyone sort of agreed that it's okay. They agree afterwards. Like, you know, a lot of people say, I'm really glad you captured that because that showed this aspect of, you know, the issue that, you know, otherwise people wouldn't see. Um, but it's it's hard for me, especially, I mean, I'm, I'm generally sort of an upbeat, optimistic person and sort of to sort of steep in, in that, you know, difficultness and seeing someone go through that is, is really, really difficult. Um, and to some degree, the viewfinder almost acts as like a little bit of a barrier, right? So I'm, I'm not really there watching um, sort of that pain in real time, but rather I'm watching it on a tiny screen as if I'm watching like a little movie on my, on my phone. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think to some degree, like when we had, when we shot the overdoses and heroin, you know, it was, I think it was much harder for Elaine because she was doing audio. And so she was present in the scene, right? She is there, she is watching it. She's holding the microphone. She's can look around the room and everyone else and sort of see all the things that are going on where me, I'm like, okay, is it recording? Am I in focus? There's so many other things in my mind rather than just sort of the, the tragedy that's happening on screen. Um, that it's to some degree, it's a little easier, but there's still those moments where you're just like, I really wish I wasn't recording this. Mm-hmm. How important in Appalachia, especially is transparency with your documentary subject. Do you all believe in being as transparent as possible before you even start a project or? For sure. Yeah. I mean, very transparent, you know, beginning and throughout and at the end, you know, there's a lot of people who'll make, films about Appalachia that maybe aren't 100% positive that won't even show the film in Appalachia, right? They don't, they don't want to show their faces here because they'll know that, you know, they'll get, um, they won't get a great feedback, right? Because of how they presented the person on screen of how they, um, showed that person on screen. And I think what really comes down to, you know, the films that Elaine and I have made, um, is that even if some things aren't positive, right? I don't think it's not a positive or negative thing, right? Like it's either an honest portrayal or a dishonest portrayal whether it's positive or negative is a moot point, right? It's life. Um, and so we've always really tried more than anything else to show an honest portrayal. And so, yes, you see negative things on screen. Yes, you see tough things on screen, but the people in the film can sit there and watch it and be like, you know, that is, that is me, right? I said those things. Maybe I regret saying those things. Maybe I don't regret it. Maybe that did happen to me and I regret it. But the fact is like that portrayal is an honest portrayal. And we've been at least lucky enough, uh, lucky enough to, you know, have that experience with all the people that we've had in, in those two films and a lot of other documentaries. And, and I chalk that up a lot to sort of Elaine's integrity. Um, you know, ultimately as the director of those two films, she ultimately decides kind of what goes in and what goes out. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of things that, you know, when you're when you're working with, you know, other companies who have their own, you know, they want to they want people to come watch, you know, they like, oh, you should put like, you know, this more exploitative aspect into it. We need to see, you know, people, you know, using and with needles and all these different things that, you know, a lot of people will just say, oh, yeah, we can go get that. Like, yeah, we can, you know, fake that or show that or whatever it is. And, you know, Elaine just won't. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it just comes down to, you know, that's not what this film's about. This film's about recovery or this film's about people helping. And so, you know, if you want to watch that, there are other things to watch. Um, but my characters didn't go through it. And if my characters didn't go through it, then and if I wasn't there to film it, then, you know, it didn't happen in my in my mind. Um, uh, and I've been conflicted mid project. Like I've had people, producers tell me, you know, like, let's go find all the pill bottles we can or the uh you know just going through garbage literally filming garbage and i'll just i'll just blatantly sit there and put it completely out of focus and not say anything about it just because it's so ridiculous yeah. you know what we're grabbing and maybe that's not good but uh you know for my personal career but personally like m- morally i just can't do it and you know and and obviously I'll, I'll bring it up to them, but, you know, I try to make things that I would be okay with showing someone sitting right next to me, you know, showing them on screen while I'm sitting there with them watching it. Yep. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's important for sure. And yeah, you get, and you get a feeling of kind of how you did, um, when you do that, you know, before Hair and Recovery Boys came out, we had private screenings for everybody in the film. And that was honestly maybe the most nerve wracking two hours of my life when we showed uh, Recovery Boys to the you know 20 people who are sort of the 20 principal people who are in the film and, you know, their friends and family. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's you either show that as a documentarian or you, you know, do like a lot of people do. And with your tail behind your legs, show it to a bunch of people in New York. Um, and, you know, I just for me personally and obviously for Elaine, you know, that's just not the type of documentary filmmakers we want to be. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I don't want to get emails, uh, you know, 
threatening my life, <laughs> you know, or, you know, I don't want I don't want people to think that I'm in it for ill intentions. You know, obviously, uh, you know, let's talk about that feeling like I've I've been able to screen one documentary I've made in a theater, thankfully. And it is and ours wasn't really that sensitive. I mean, you know, you had people that broke down crying and, you know, was talking about their drug addiction, which is obviously big stuff. But, you know, when you're showing people on one of the worst moments of their life, what is it like when the credits roll and you don't, you know, you hear an applause and it feels good. And then you're sitting there like, well, I wonder what they really thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> What's that feeling yeah, yeah. like? Uh, I think that's, I mean, it's one of the toughest parts of making a film because especially a longer film is because it takes so much time and then sort of when you put it out in the world and people just, you know, watch it for 90 minutes or watch it for 39 minutes or whatever it might be. And then for them, that experience is over, right? Like, like they might be like, wow, oh, it was a great movie. I mean, think of even just like giant big budget movies that you go see in a theater. You're like, you know, you talk about it with your friends for maybe 20, 30 minutes, whether you liked it or didn't like it. And, and that was it, right? It just sort of, it just sort of ends. Um, and so there is definitely sort of a, and I think heroin was different just because of, you know, how, how well it did after release. But in every other thing that I've made that's sort of been a big project, there's always sort of this like anticlimactic end to it. Um, and it, it's, you know, if you're watching in a theater, especially, yeah, just like, yeah, they, people might applaud, but you really don't know kind of what people think about it. And like in a lot of creative work, and maybe maybe that's why like when you put something on the internet, it's usually people just trolling or you know just saying <laughs> sort of mean things. And but there is sort of that aspects in shorter stuff if you can get people to respond to it, and if you have a little bit of an audience on the internet, where you actually get a lot more feedback online. And again, it may not be um, you know people that you know specifically, but um, you know when you show a film in a theater or it's you know on a Netflix, for example, you actually don't really know kind of what what people really think about it unless you're getting reviews and things like that. So um, yeah, film film is kind of weird like that where it's you know so much time is put into it and and the end product for so many people is fairly fleeting um, and that can be tough, especially as sort of like a, if you're not you know I think kind of what you're doing in building a production company is is you're building something. Um, you know, obviously you have individual projects, but everything adds up to building up to bigger, bigger things, right? Like, okay, we can hire more people and now our team's bigger. And, but when you're just sort of like a single freelance director, photographer, whatever it is, you go and do a project. And then once it's over, you kind of sit there and be like, all right, I guess I'll start another one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Like you're basically back to zero. Like if you'd never made anything ever again, then, you know, everyone, nobody would, maybe some people would be disappointed, but, um, but you're not like letting, you know, a team of eight down or you're not like your production company that you're building down. It's just like it's literally just, OK, I'm now I'm back to zero and now I need to start something new. Um, right. And that's the part I think is the hardest for me is is, you know, I don't mind, you know, when I'm watching something on on uh, a screen with a bunch of other people, you know, especially if I shot the film. It's me. It's more of just being lost, you know, self-critical, like oh, I should have done that better. I should have done that better. I should have done that better. Um, mm. But. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm always, I'm maybe too confident sometimes in sort of the end product. Um, and then right. like, there's a, I'm much more of a good enough is better than perfect type of person. Um, well, well if my opinion help, I mean, you know, you're a good person to trust when it comes to a final product. So, I mean, it, obviously, uh, people would do certain things different, but even still, like the success you've had, it's it's evident that you've you've got the process down. Do you feel a pressure? And I'm sorry, I can talk all day with you. Uh, do you feel a pressure to level up, like for your next project to do better than your last project? I mean, you've already set, you know, at the Academy Awards and shook hands with all these people. Is there a pressure there, or are you kind of just still enjoying the ride? Um, no, there's definitely, I think there's definitely a pressure, especially initially. I think in the last couple of years, um, I've become a little better at, you know, refocusing on doing stuff that I enjoy and less doing stuff that I think will be successful. Um, and sometimes that can be, you know, the same thing. I really enjoyed making the boxing film and, you know, it's, it's still not out in the world and I'm still working on it. Um, and I really liked it, but I also put a lot of pressure, a lot, a lot of pressure on it to be bigger and better and better, um, than, 
you know, than the thing we did before. So, you know, we, we pitched it as a doc series, you know, we found a bunch of characters. I filmed a bunch more. I spent more money on making it. I got nicer cameras. Like everything was just sort of like really ramped up. And I think I put a lot of pressure on that and that on that series. Um, and there's still a, you know, a, a good chance that it'll come to fruition. I mean, we'll definitely come to fruition in some form, um, but in the way I, that I intended it as a multi-part series. So um, hopefully that's, that's still a thing, but yeah, and there's a lot of pressure to, to do that just because it seems, you know, if you're not sort of moving forward and not getting bigger and bigger and bigger, then, you know, either sort of standing still or, or going back, you know, like the world wants to tell you, you look at all the other documentary filmmakers who had success. Now they're like, oh, now I'm directing an episode of, you know, a Netflix series or now I made this other doc series. And then I realized, you know, like, oh, I don't actually watch doc series. I find them quite boring. <laughs> <laughs> like I watched the first episode of a lot of doc series. But then I'm like, okay, I get it. Like you show me an hour, which is almost as long as a normal documentary of a subject and like characters. And like, I've learned, I was in that world and I was steeped in that world and I enjoyed it. But like, I'm not going to watch seven more hours of this. Um, right. And so like. Unless it's really captivating. Unless it's like, really captivating. Been, but I also think like that, a, that, I also think that's a little bit of a trick because I think like they're, they're dragging things out for the cliffhanger so that you'll just kind of keep watching. There are some, I mean, Flint town was excellent. Um, and that was probably the one doc series I think I've started and finished, but a lot of the others right. I'll either watch, yeah, maybe three or four episodes, but still like they're really captivating, but I'll generally kind of fall off. Um, and so I'm like, well, what do I actually like enjoy watching? What do I enjoy doing? And like, what do I want to make? And what, like put that out into the world because mm -hmm. that is ultimately going to be better than me trying to create something that I think other people want. Um, because once you start doing that, then you're not creating either something original, but you're also just not creating something that you'll have the energy to continue doing. When something takes three years, you better have a lot of energy to do it. Um, uh, or have, you know, someone who won't let it die, uh, on your right. team, on your team. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely pressure, but, um, I think I've started to move more towards, you know, just, just doing what I enjoy rather than what other people expect me to do. Oh, that's, that's what it's all about. What would you want to say about, since you all are headed to Tennessee, which is still right on the edge of, of Appalachia, you know, what has your experience in West Virginia and filming in West Virginia been like over these several years and the people you've met? Filming in West Virginia, it's, it's interesting. And I think this probably be true for a lot of rural communities, but I think in like Appalachia and especially central Appalachia and therefore West Virginia, uh, it probably holds true more for here is that people in areas like West Virginia um, who are going through things or who, you know, maybe have it a little tougher than, than other people in the country is they they are almost used to other people coming in and telling their story, right? Like people from New York or DC or wherever it is, you know, sort of the bigger media outlets. Um, and so therefore, like the reception that we've received as West Virginians and being able to get, you know, some you know, big stories and big, large ideas sort of on major platforms, right? Like we are, we're playing with the LA people and the New York people and the DC people, the people that usually just fly in here, shoot for a week and then split and kind of do whatever they want. Um, you know, you're just, you're just held more accountable if you're at the place that you're filming and you're living in the place that you're filming, right? Like we've gone to literally restaurants in Huntington and seen people that we filmed. We've gone, you know, seen people in Morgantown that we filmed. Um, just by going to the grocery store, you see people, people that trusted you with their story. Um, and because you're doing that, you know, you're held more accountable for what you do. And if you're not held accountable, then you can kind of do whatever you want. And I think, you know, people who have, um, sort of been a part of different media that's come out of West Virginia or Appalachia have sort of that sour taste in their mouth, right? Because they have been portrayed unfairly, um, or stereotypically and, you know, the uh, people are always apprehensive at first, you know, when, um, you know, when you show up with a camera, like when I started shooting the boxing film, I'd show up with the camera and they're like, oh, where are you from? And I was like, oh, I, I live in, you know, Charleston, you know, I've made, I've made films in West Virginia and they're like, oh, you know, what films? And you're like, oh, heroin. Like, oh, sweet. <laughs> like, almost like, cool. Um, you know, it's just sort of this, this nice, um, badge of being sort of a rural filmmaker and being able to portray people in an honest way that people really get behind you, you know? Um, and to that degree, like, it's also feel like it was really needed, you know? Elaine and I have talked about, like, oh, we can move to this big city or that big city. And it's like, but we're not needed there in a lot of ways, right? Like, we're not needed in Austin. There's 
500 of us in Austin. There's a thousand of us in New York. There's 10,000 of us or a million of us in LA. Um, and though we're moving to Knoxville, it still has sort of that same feeling, right? Still Appalachia. We're still actually the same distance from, we looked it up, we're the same distance from like uh, Welch and McDowell County where Elaine made hollow, you know, because she's talked about, you know, following up with some of those characters. And so there's, you know, we're actually still, you know, within within distance of a lot of great places in, in central Appalachia where we, we have told stories. Right. Uh, while we do a lot of work in West Virginia, we've also done a lot of work in, you know, southern and eastern Kentucky and southwest Virginia. Um, and so we'll still be pretty close to those areas. And actually, I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff in East Tennessee, too, that is that is very compelling sort of in that Appalachian world. So we're excited to sort of explore that area as well. Um, but yeah, being a, being a rural filmmaker when a lot of them just don't exist, um, or exist a lot less than other places, you know, it's, it's nice to know that you don't have to run off to a big city to, to do this type of work. Curran, there are no words to describe how much I admire your talent and couldn't be happier than to call you and Elaine, my friends. You can find out more about the series Quarantine Life by visiting their YouTube page and the Facebook page Hot Contents. Also check out some of Curran's commercial work at xenoproductions.com. Appalachia Startup is a bi-weekly podcast, so be sure to check back for more stories of entrepreneurship. Like us on Facebook and Instagram and support the show by grabbing a sticker from our online store at AppalachianStartup.com. Review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud as well. We are on Patreon. You can support the show there and allow us to showcase more businesses in Appalachia. Stay tuned for more stories of underdogs on the rise.